Uh, tonight, I have the honor of concluding our series of poems of, anybody know? Lamentations, that's right. It's a series of poems. And I'm going to first, before we get into that, ask my beautiful wife, Natasha, to come read uh, those 22 lines, poem, poetic lines found in the fifth and final poem, Lamentations 5. And as she comes up, go ahead and come up. As she comes up, Pastor Russell uh, thinks she's a lot shorter than she really is. Um, but as she comes up, uh, I also want to um, preface this study with kind of a disclaimer. Uh, this is not a teaching for a regular Sunday Christian. Yeah, exactly. This is one of the first times you'll hear uh, a study on the Book of Lamentations. And tonight's study is not really a study for the regular Sunday Christian. Well, that's good because it's Wednesday. And um, so we, but what I mean by that is it's not a study for the casual Christian who will just maybe show up on Sunday. This passage deals today with some of the toughest stuff that you'll face. And we are gonna talk and unpack some of those tough things. We're not gonna shy away from it, we're gonna unpack it. Listen to Natasha as she reads. Let's read Lamentations 5, 1 through 22 together. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are, our, are at our necks. We are weary, we are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Let's pray. Father, as we look into uh, your Holy Spirit-inspired scripture, 
we ask that you would um, open our hearts, make them receptive. Lord, use me, and just like that little boy, all I have is some fives and fives and twos that I bring you. But Lord, break it, multiply it, and feed your people. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let me ask a little pop trivia before we start. Who can tell me what the top grossing movie of all time is? Avatar is close. It's in the top five, I think, but it's not quite there. Star Wars Passion. I'll give you a clue. You guys are kind of getting there. I'll give you a clue. It is a Marvel movie. Endgame, Henry got it. Endgame is the top grossing movie of all time. Any Marvel fans out there? Yeah. I fall asleep to it sometimes, uh, you know, just to have it on. Yeah, yeah, but Endgame has, has grossed the most amount of money of all time. Of course, it's been more available and, and things like that. So Endgame is a Marvel movie. Sometimes we see Bill here with his um, Marvel cap, and then he'll have a DC shirt on. He's just a superhero guy. Um, does anybody know what the prequel to Endgame is? It was called Infinity War. Infinity War. Some of you might remember seeing, and if you don't, that's okay. Back when Infinity War was in theaters, Avengers Infinity War was in theaters, I remember asking a student of mine, a music student of mine, um, because he saw it before me, and I was like, how was the movie? And he immediately said, without missing a beat, oh man, the ending was trash. The ending was trash. So I went to see it, and let me give you a little plot uh, before, by the way, how many people have actually seen this movie? Before, yeah, okay, quite a few of you have seen it. Um, the movie brings in finally the biggest and the baddest supervillain that they've been working up at this point for eight, ten years. And then two hours go by in the movie, and the villain, Thanos, snaps his fingers, and half of life turns to dust. Half of life turns to think about your household, think about whatever, half of life. Half of your family is gone. And at this point, you've been sitting in the theaters for two hours by now. You know that the film is almost done. And you can audibly hear, as the movie goes to its credits, the viewer sitting there saying, what? What the heck? I could hear them in the audience. What the heck? This is not how this movie is supposed to end. Movies don't end like this. That the heroes are defeated, deflated. This is not a welcome ending. This is trash, as my student says. Normally, you leave a superhero movie feeling pumped, feeling elated, feeling like you can do anything. But not this time. The ending leaves you feeling blah. No, that's not how it was supposed to be. This can't happen. And it really shows you how we like our movies, how we like our stories, how we like our art. We want a happy ending. We, want, we don't want to end on a low note, on a defeated note. 
We want to end on a victorious, feel-good note. We want to end on a high. I do this every week with my art. In the 22 years that I've been leading worship, every set list that I've planned ends on a high note, on a feeling of optimism. And I plan this. I plan to end every set list with a note of hope in the lyric, in the music, not of despair, because that's how you're supposed to leave church, right? With hope in your heart. The book of Lamentations would have been really nice if it ended with verse 21. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old. Perfect, beautiful, on a high note with a glimpse of hope. But instead, there's one more verse and it ends on a low. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us? It ends with a question. It ends with uncertainty. It ends leaving you feel, ah, no, I can't end like this. But the Holy Spirit does this because I believe he is capturing in the book of Lamentations something that is so significant to the human experience. Something very significant to the human experience. So in our series, Pastor Russell, Henry, Marty, they have all walked us through these poems and the context of lamentations. And I recommend you going back after you leave tonight or if you're online, go back, watch those messages online. They set up the context for basically what I'm going to uh, share with you tonight. And we learned that Lamentations is a series of poems. And the poems express the state of God's people who have been exiled, pushed out of their own country, nation, land, home. And after it's, they've been pushed out after they've been forewarned by God, turn back to him or this is going to happen to you. These poems are full of graphic images and they're full of emotion. And Hebrew poetry, especially when we read it in scripture, of course there is Hebrew poetry outside of scripture, but Hebrew poetry is some of the most rich poetry you will ever read. You know, in English, we tend to like poems that rhymes, right? A poem with a rhyme, with a rhythm, with a meter is easy to remember. Roses are red, violets are blue, that sort of thing. It has this rhyme and rhythm. It's easy for us to recite and remember. Most of the songs that we sing, they rhyme. In fact, they rhyme every two lines, a couplet. Every two lines they rhyme. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I once was lost, but now I'm found. It's easy to remember. Hebrew poetry takes a little different, deeper approach. Instead of rhyming words and sounds and syllables, Hebrew poetry will rhyme ideas. Ideas that sound similar, that sound the same. Ideas that go together. For instance, as the deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for God. Or how about this one? The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. There's a parallel similar movement in the thought. They're rhyming their thoughts. They're not rhyming the sounds. 
And those are simple examples. As the deer pounds for water is a very physical representation. Let's take it up a level, the parallel. My soul thirsts for God. The Lord is great, so the proportion is my praise needs to match the greatness of God. So I will also greatly praise him. You see how the mind and heart and soul are now engaged in the poetry. And this parallel movement, the parallelism, parallelism is just one form of Hebrew poetry. Another form is an acrostic. An acrostic. An acrostic uses the first letter of the alphabet to start each line. The first letter of the alphabet to start each line. Here's an example of an acrostic. And we have a slide, a series of slides for that. Humorous. Sparkling wit. Okay, notice the first letter there. Next, engaging, winning others over. All right, noble, an honorable heart. Reliable, a brother you can count on. Yearning, a thirst for God. Do you notice the first letters of every line there? What does it spell? Henry, it spells Henry. Humorous, engaging, noble, reliable, yearning. And this is an, an example of acrostic. It's not just an acronym, but there's pro, pro, poems that follow, those words that follow there. Acrostics have a sense of order and progression. It makes sense. When I'm talking about Henry, uh, the subject of who our poem is about, and the further you read along, you get to know Henry a little more, a little deeper. You get to know who he is at the core of him, which the, this acrostic is at the core of him. Henry yearns. He has a thirst for God, right? He yearns. That's what makes him him. And this acrostic was about Henry. The Lamentations 1 through 4 are acrostics about grief, about sorrow. And there are acrostics in order of the Hebrew alphabet, 22 letters, trying to logically make sense out of pain, out of suffering. And in between there, out of pain and suffering, you get pockets of hope. You see pockets of hope found in Lamentations. But the greater tapestry is that of tremendous loss and tremendous grief. It's a huge tapestry with pockets of hope, but it's all about sorrow and grief and loss. And they're trying to be logical, ordering it A, B, C, D, or Aleph, and so on in the Hebrew alphabet. Trying to be logical and systematic and put it in order, put our feelings in order, trying to make sense of it. And then, that's Lamentations 1 through 4, and then we come to chapter 5, today's poem. Chapter 5 breaks that pattern. It's no longer in order. There's no order. It's no longer an acrostic. All order, trying to make sense of things, is just thrown out the window. It's like grief has cranked its volume up to 11. All these things of trying to make sense of how I feel, no. And there's cries and there's screams and grief has just cranked up. No filter, so to speak. Just saying and complaining and telling God how I feel. Our son, Micah Abraham, was born on October 25th, 2022, at 6.24 p.m. And after three hours of holding him, 
lovingly. Micah's heart stopped beating. And Micah was ushered into the strong, safe arms of Jesus. Me and Natasha's hearts and our families, we are broken. That we couldn't see Micah's life unfold here on earth. And yet still we rest confident in the hope of Christ that though Micah died, yet shall he live. And there are many days when Natasha and I have where we try to make sense of the death of our son. It happened because of this or because I didn't do this for you or because we did this or you worked too hard and we try to make sense of it. We express our thoughts and our feelings and our questions, our reasons, and everything from A to B to C all the way to Z. We rehearse the order of events, the things that took place for us to get to this point. We rehearse and remember how happy we were when we first found out that we were first pregnant, our first pregnancy. And we remember when everything came crashing down. We remember those pockets of hope when we went to the hospital for the ultrasound and everything is fine, perfect, good reports. The things, and then later on when we reached the hospital knowing what was about to happen and still the doctors offered us hope. We could still do this. Maybe we can try this. Hope in trying to keep Micah healthy. We knew who our God is. We knew the power of prayer. We had that hope. We knew that we're children of God and we've given our best. We've done our best to honor him and we rehearse and recall everything from A to Z. And then there are those days where the grief is just cranked. It's just cranked up for no particular reason. Nothing triggered it. We didn't see something. It's just heavy. It's hard. That's just how it is and that's the way it is and we cry and we get upset and we get irritated and we start to question everything why did it end like this it can't end like this and it leaves you feeling blah point number one if you have a handout and if you're following along in your notes Lamentations is unresolved. Lamentations is unresolved. Lamentations is capturing something very significant to the human experience. That unresolved endings, when things just, they just don't. They just don't. When there is tremendous trust and knowing who God is, And at the same time, there's profound uncertainty and questions. The tension that there is between, we know who you are, God, but you're burning hot, boiling over angry against us. And then lamentation just ends. It just ends right there. We know who you are, but you're still boiling hot, angry. Your wrath burns against us, just ends. Even in preparing today's teaching, I want to end on a high note. And I searched for that good ending that I should have as my final last point. 
I even told my wife, Natasha, over the last several weeks, I think I have some points, but I don't have that strong ending yet. I haven't crafted that strong ending yet. And so I studied more, I prayed more, and I wanted to pull from other scriptures to craft the ultimate ending, which we all know. But then I realized, and God checked me and said, that's not right. That's not right. You need to honor what the Holy Spirit is doing in these verses. I need to honor what the book of Lamentations is capturing. So today, you may not like how this study ends. You may not like how I wrap this up. It may leave you feeling uncomfortable. It may leave you feeling uncertain. It may leave you with more questions, in fact. It may leave you feeling unresolved. That is the text. Lamentations is unresolved. And I want to do honor and justice to the text. Verse 1 of chapter 5 starts with the plea. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Remember us. Look at us. Do you even care that we've been disgraced? In the original language, there are three separate words used in the first line as a plea for God to see what's happening plea for God to see us. The first is remember, as if to ask, God, do you even remember us? Have you forgotten us? The second, you see, is look. Look at us. Are you even looking in our direction? Turn your head and look over here. Almost like telling a child, just come, look this, look this way when we're taking a picture. I do this to my dog all the time. Hey, look over here, look over here. Almost like saying that. Are you even looking in our direction? And the third is see, which gets buried in the English translation. But see is more like, even if you're looking in our direction, are you really seeing the degree of our humiliation? Can you even see that? Of course, we know that God does see. He is all seeing and all knowing. But still there are times when we feel like God is not paying attention to us, that God is not with us. And even the best Christians, even the best, will ask God these questions. They do. Do you remember who Jesus said is the greatest man who ever lived? John the Baptist. Very good. Got some Bible scholars in here. John the Baptist Jesus said, that is the greatest man who ever lived, according to Jesus. John the Baptist did everything according to God's plan for his life. He was the greatest man. He wasn't a perfect man, but he was the greatest man. John was a man who was bold enough to call out sin when he saw it, and to call it to people, turn back, go back to God. He did so with regular people like you and me, and then he did so with people of very high status. He wasn't afraid. He was bold. He was a lion of a man. He called out political figureheads, kings, Herods, who were corrupt, people who were steeped in incest and sexual immorality. And for that, for calling it out, he was thrown into prison because the person he called out didn't like it, or the people, I should say, he called out didn't like it. He was thrown into prison. And when Jesus heard that John was thrown into prison, 
Jesus literally turned and headed the opposite way. He headed the opposite way of where John the Baptist was held prisoner. You can read that in Matthew 4, 12. And when you look at the map of where John was being held prisoner and see where Jesus went, the Sea of Galilee, the beach, so to speak, they, were, they are in opposite directions. John was taken south, Jesus went north. And then from prison, John the Baptist sends his friends to go ask Jesus a question. By the way, it's good that John had friends. He had disciples. Because in prison in ancient times, if you went to prison, you were left for dead. Nobody was there to take care of you. You had to have somebody, somebody, a, a friend, a, somebody who would come and take care of you, feed you, bring you food, bring you water, talk to you, ask about your day. You're living in dark dungeons. You don't think you'll go crazy? You don't think you'll feel lonely? It's good that John had disciples and he had friends, people around him who could take care of him. Otherwise, he would have died. He would have died there. And John sends his friends to go ask Jesus, are you really the one? Or is there someone else coming for me? Is there someone else that we should look for? Someone else that we should wait for? Are you the one we've been waiting for? Or should I be waiting for somebody else? The greatest man who ever lived questioned and asked, are you really the savior? And then Jesus responds with, in the consequential verses, tell John this. Tell him the blind see and the lame leap and the sick are healed and the prisoner is set for, oh wait, maybe don't tell John that one because John's a prisoner. <laughs> but tell him all these things. How do you think John felt? Do you think maybe he thought or the thought crossed his mind, everybody else is getting set free except for me. Things are working out even for those who stood up against me and now they're singing Jesus' praises. They're, they're working out for them, but here I am stuck. Are you even there, Jesus? Are you even who you say you are? And you know how John's life comes to an end. He's beheaded. Even the best people question. Even the best people wonder. See, Lamentations is capturing a significant part of the best and the worst human experience. Number two, Lamentations is unsettling. Lamentations is unsettling. The chapter starts with a plea, which we read in verse one. Do you see us? Do you know us? And then verses 2 through 18 are a series of chaotic complaints. There's no order. Throw order out the window. I have things on my, that I just have to get off my chest that I need to say. No filter. Complaints that happen to be disturbingly graphic and unsettling in description. Everyone is suffering. Everyone. From babies to old men. Boys, girls, women, and children. Leaders. Men. Faithful and faithless are suffering. Jeremiah is suffering with the few faithful followers and believers. And everybody else is suffering, those who rebelled against God. Everyone is suffering is here. No one is spared. And I want to briefly 
Not that I want to, I need to briefly highlight two of these graphic images to possibly help us understand what is actually happening here. Verse 12, princes are hung up by their hands. Princes are hung up by their hands, hanging, lynching, a humiliating and cruel way to execute somebody. And it says hung up by their hands. Why their hands? Normally, when a person is hung or lynched, they are are strung up by what? Their neck. Their necks. Why would an oppressor hang a body? Why wouldn't, rather, an oppressor hang a body by by its neck and by its hand? Remember, we are reading poetry, and not everything is as plain and explicit in this type of art form. Why would you hang a body by its hand instead of its neck? Slower death? Longer suffering? Good answers. Not the one that I'm gonna explain to you. You wouldn't be able to hang a body by their neck if their head has been severed. So you hang them by their hand. Does that make sense? You can't hang a body by its neck if their head has been disembodied. They're hung by, princes are hung by their hand. Princes, why princes? It's an interesting term to use here. Normally we think of princes as being royalty, somebody who will inherit the throne. Um, But the word that's used here actually may be interpreted as a term of endearment. For instance, my sister's husband calls my sister his queen, right? His queen. It's a term of endearment. He means that because she is, he loves her very much. It's a term of endearment. She's the most precious jewel to him. Similarly, some of you might call your daughter, especially the dads might call your daughter when she was growing up, as your princess, my princess. Some of you mothers might have called your son as your little prince. It's a term of endearment, or maybe you have some other term that you use, but you have those terms of endearment that you call your your children, especially when they're young. As a term of endearment in the national language of India, in Hindi, sometimes parents will call their kids my little Raja, Raja, which means my prince or my princess, my star, my light, that sort of thing, the one I love, my innocent child, my Raja. And while prince could mean leader, oftentimes it will refer to a young, innocent life. An innocent life, disembodied, hung by their hand, naked. Because that's how people were hung in ancient times. Can you feel the intensity? Can you feel the weight of the sorrow? Lamentations is unsettling. Let me give you one more example. Verse 11. Women are raped in Zion. 
Another translation, a more accurate translation, will say virgins are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah. In this country, present day, right now, a person is sexually assaulted every 68 seconds. A person is assaulted, sexually assaulted, every 68 seconds. And roughly one out of two women in the U.S. have been sexually assaulted. That's present day. I want to take a moment to talk about sexual assault in the ancient world, in the context that we're studying. And I want to give you, let you know that everything I'm about to describe and say to you is horrifying and unsettling and wrong. But it's true. The way that rape worked in the ancient world, the way that it was viewed, especially in times of warfare, which is what we're studying, was less about the violation of women. The women weren't even considered in these scenarios, especially during war. Remember, women in ancient times had no rights. They had no status in a patriarchal society. Again, this is wrong. Rape was less about the violation of women, but instead it was used as a tactic to humiliate the people they conquered, to humiliate the men that they conquered. Asian culture, South Asian culture, Middle Eastern culture is an honor-shame-based culture. And to bring shame on the people, even the men of that culture, rape was a tactic, especially the men of that culture. Rape was the tactic to humiliate them, to make sure that men watched in horror and humiliation and shame in their inability to protect their women and their children. To humiliate them, say, you can't even protect your wife and kids, your sister, your mother, your granddaughter. And so foreign armies would often rape women, the women that they conquered, to bring shame and humiliation. And another level, another side of this is that if children came out of these sexual assault relations, it would then mix or contaminate their bloodline, making it impure according to the cultural standards back then. Now we know there's no such thing as contaminating a bloodline because of ethnic mixing and marriages, and, but that wasn't the thought back then because it was thought that your people group will then disappear because I have contaminated your bloodline. I'm trying to point out that on one level, this is completely and utterly horrifying. And on the next level, this is cultural humiliation of a people, of a people group. Hear me, listen to me. God thinks this is wrong. It is why throughout scripture and throughout the law, he instructs his people, don't do this thing. Don't do this. And he instructs his people to make provision for the wives, for the women, and for the children who are taken in from warfare. God's instruction makes provision. But these are the types of things that come out of the ancient world and ancient culture that we read in scripture. And sadly, not even that culture, in our culture, sexual assault happens every 68 seconds in our country. 
And if you have been a victim of sexual assault, I am so very sorry. I want to tell you today, and I want to remind you today, God remembers you. God is looking at you, and God cares for you. And look at the location at where this happens in this verse. Where are they assaulted? In Zion. Not just in Jerusalem, but where the temple was. Can you understand the levels of humiliation? And, the, and still, the, the writer of, this, of these poems can say, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Lamentations is unsettling. It'll disturb your peace. I'm not just talking about the context. I'm talking about the things we experience in this culture. Things that people are experiencing every 68 seconds. It'll disturb your peace. Next. Verse 7, our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. That's verse 7. Our fathers sinned and are, are no more, and we bear their iniquities. In other words, our ancestors who sinned against you, remember, we're generations in by this point. Our ancestors who sinned against you, they're all gone and dead now. And now we have to inherit the consequences of their sin? Does that sound fair to you? That someone before you sins so much against God and now you have to pay for it. You have to pay for it. That doesn't sound fair. That's unfair. In fact, that's my third point. Lamentations is unfair. Lamentations is unfair. Why should I inherit or pay for the mistakes of someone else? Why should I have to do that? Why should somebody not show up at work and I get docked? That's not fair. That doesn't make any sense to me. Why should I pay for the mistakes of my parents? Why should I pay for the mistakes of my grandparents? That's totally unfair. Do you want to pay for the consequence and sins of your relatives? for three, four, six generations ago, essentially people you don't even know. How is that fair? How is paying for the sin of someone else fair? Let me put it another way. How is it fair that Christ paid for your sin? How is that fair? How is that fair that Jesus died for your sin? How is it fair that a little innocent lamb should be slaughtered and sacrificed because of my sin. How is that fair? Is it fair? Is it even fair? Yes or no? Both. It's unfair and it's fair. Let me explain. See, when someone dies, maybe a great-grandfather, grandmother, grandparent, they will often leave something behind. I mean, they leave everything behind, but they leave something 
for, to be inherited, to be inherited. Wealth, they leave pros, uh, property, they leave some heirlooms to be passed on, right? To be inherited by somebody else, to be inherited by a succeeding generation. In that case, wealth, prosperity, heirlooms, we like that deal. We love that deal. That's a good deal. We are inheriting good things. Is it a fair deal, though, that I should inherit that which my great-grandfather worked so hard for? Is it fair that I get it? No. That's actually not fair. We just like that deal. We just like that deal better. But God's deal goes both ways. The inheritance is the inheritance and everything that comes with it. That's the deal. Not what you inherit, but the inheritance is the deal. Okay, I'm not making any sense. I'm just repeating the word inheritance, right? Let me explain it in a different way. When you go to church with your young child and they hear you reciting songs and they hear you reading scripture and they hear you praying and blessing others on Sundays and Wednesdays and then on every other day of the week, they hear you cussing and they hear you disrespecting your spouse. Which of the two are they going to inherit? The Sunday words or the Monday through Saturday words? Both. They'll inherit both. They'll hear you. They'll know what to say in church, and they'll know what to say at home. They get both. That's the deal, that they get both until you discipline them, until you correct them, of course, which is what this passage is about. They get both. But when Christ, the spotless, perfect, righteous Lamb of God, took your place to inherit the responsibility for your wretched, ignorant, purposeful sin, and he paid the wages of sin, which is death, you inherit, he inherits your sin, but you inherit the eternal life that belongs to him. That's the deal. So let's amend that point number three. Lamentations is unfair, and it's fair. It's unfair and it's fair. In other words, that's God's perfect justice and perfect mercy working. Perfect justice and perfect mercy. We serve a Savior who understands our deepest suffering. He understands our deepest suffering. We serve a Savior who is perfect in all of his ways and he still suffered for you. He inherited the ultimate consequence for your sin so that you could inherit eternal life. Galatians 1.4 says, Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us. See, the gospel, what Christ did for me, is the only consolation for my deep sorrow and for my lament. What Christ did for me is my only consolation, which brings me to point number four. Lamentations is Christ-like. Lament is Christ-like. Do you remember us? Are you even looking at us? Do you even care about our suffering? 
And Jesus responds with an invitation. Come, come. Look at my hands. Put your hand in my side. Look at my feet. See the, bru- the, the wounds and bruises left on my head. I don't only see you. I suffer with you. I suffer for you. I mourn with you and alongside of you. Do you remember that whenever Jesus went somewhere, scripture records something very particular. Whenever he healed, whenever he ministered, or when he was about to, wherever he walked, whenever he met with people, scripture says Jesus had compassion for them. He felt compassion for her. He had compassion for those people. What does compassion mean? It's part of our mission statement. It's literally written on our wall there. What does it mean? Compassion. It means to suffer with somebody. To suffer with someone. Can you imagine, one by one, people are approaching Jesus to be healed and delivered, and they're telling him, they're coming to Jesus and telling him what happened to them. And it's graphic. Someone says, I've been bleeding for a long time. Another says, my daughter is dead. And yet another says, no one will even touch me. Nobody will even hug me because I have such and such disease. And I have this other disease, somebody else says, because I was promiscuous. I have this other disease because of the sexual assault on my life. And the tax collector comes and says, I stole. I took more than I should have. I've been corrupt. I trafficked people. I exploited the innocent. The range of things that people have suffered through coming to Christ. I've been exploited. I've been trafficked. And Jesus had compassion. And he suffered. That's what scripture says. That's the word. He suffered with every single person. And he suffers with you. That brings me to our fifth and final point. Just like Lamentations 5.5 in your notes breaks the mold. It breaks the pattern. Circles are better than rows. Circles are better than rows. I don't have an answer to why there are some problems that can't be solved. I don't have an answer to why some tensions can't just be smoothed over. I can't have an answer why sexual assault happens to the innocent. I can't have the answer of why we lost our son, Micah. I don't have an answer of why you may have been struggling to keep a job your entire life and others are just swimming in wealth. I don't have an answer why maybe God hasn't healed you yet or why your loved one died too soon, why your partner left you, why someone hurt you, someone that you respected or somebody random hurt you. And by the way, it would be wise for us not to answer these questions. Don't do that to somebody who's suffering. Don't try to answer those questions. I don't have those answers. I can't have those answers. But I do know that circles are better than rows. Now, what does that mean? See, it's easy to go to church. It's easy to go anywhere, really. It's easy to go to work and go to the grocery store, go to the theater, and not engage with anybody. Don't look at anybody. Keep my head down. Don't look at the solicitor. Don't look at the poor homeless man. Don't, look at the, don't even look at the lady, just you know, scan my groceries and, and let me check out. 
I can easily go to church and get in my row and not look at anybody, just look forward, not look at anyone. See, you can come to church and do all the right stuff and still be a dead Christian. You can sit in the seats and still be a dead Christian. That's what Luke 15 is all about. But when you're in a circle, you have to face people. When we get in circles tonight, you have to face people. You have to look in their eyes. You have to learn about their struggles and their triumphs. A circle represents facing each other and sharing the joys and sorrows, the victories and defeats. And when you get a group of people around you that you can share those things, it's still hard. When you're stuck in prison and you have to invite your friends to come and feed you, to come and give you water, to come and talk to you so you don't go nuts. It's still hard, but it's better. Still hard. It's not easy, but it's better. Because when you see somebody and they cry, doesn't it make you feel like crying? When you see somebody smile, it makes you feel like smiling. Jesus has comforted us so that we can comfort others. Get out of the row and get into a circle. Get out of the row and get into a circle of people. And if you're already in a circle, please widen your circle. Make it bigger. Widen your circle. Because when something happens to a family member or someone we love, we rush to them. We pray intensely for them because they're close to our heart. How about if over 50,000 people are killed in an earthquake in Turkey and Syria? Do you rush to them? Do you pray intensely? Are you moved in your heart? Men, women, children, infants alike, 50,000 have been killed. Does your heart break over that? Do you have compassion for that? What can you do when there's nothing left to do? When it is the way it is, that's the way it is. You may not have words, and you definitely won't have the right answers. You feel, blah. That's not the way this was supposed to happen. But there's only one thing you can do. You can grieve with those who are grieving. You can suffer with each other through the good and through the bad. Compassion. You can be that pocket of hope in the middle of their tapestry that's full of grief and sorrow. You can be that pocket of hope in the middle of their desperate time. See, you and I are meant to lament. We're meant to lament. As Christians, you and I are meant to share in the sorrows and sufferings of others. You're meant to be that friend that goes into that dark, dirty prison to that person who's wondering, is Jesus even there? Is he even who he says he is? Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill. This is how you do it. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You are meant to lament. Why? Because you're meant to be like Christ, the one who got down on our level to suffer for us. Let's pray.
Jesus, I only really have one thing to lift up and to pray for tonight. When we face nights and days that are unresolved, when we witness and undergo unsettling, horrifying, and disturbing days, weeks, years, and when we just feel like this is not fair, this is not how it's supposed to go, Lord, we ask, would you somehow, some way that we don't understand, would you keep our hearts tender to you and tender and compassionate to those around us? Keep us close to your heart. Restore us to yourself. For your kingdom and your love, they reign forever above all. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So circles are better than rows, and that's the best part about midweek service. And I have three things for you to do, whether you're in person or whether you're online. Get with somebody. Circles are better than rows. Get with somebody and do the following. First, discuss. Share a time when you felt God was far or turned away from you. Share a time when you felt that God, when you felt, doesn't mean it was true, but share a time when you felt that God was far or that he turned away from you. Number two, share a time when God proved who he is in an undeniable way. My assumption is that those of us sitting here have felt and seen God. So share a time when you've seen God prove himself in an undeniable way. And the third thing is an action, an action point. Who can you reach out to today to let them know that you care? And do it. Do it tonight. Who can you? It doesn't have to be awkward. It doesn't have to be mushy. It doesn't have to be, you know, something really uh, weird. It can be something as simple as, hey, brother, hey, man, I was thinking about you, just wanted to catch up. That's all. That's all it really has to be. You can make it whatever you, you know the person you're reaching out to. But who can you do that for? To let them know that you care, to show some compassion for them. Let's get in our circles, move from our rows to our circles, and God bless you and bless your time in your circles.